0: So this is a way of both describing what happened to knowledge since Enlightenment, formation of the disciplines, the zoning of the disciplines into these gated communities. And if now we feel that there's something constraining about being in those gated communities, then let's take one variable
1: at a time and remove it. That's Clifford Siskin, a professor of English and American literature at New York University, and director of the re enlightenment Project. Today we hear from Professor Siskin about his recent book titled System, The Shaping of Modern Knowledge. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. (laughs) Siskin's recent book, System, is an investigation into the history of a genre or a mode of explanation. It's an investigation, that is, into the use of system as a way to understand the world and as the central mode of explanation that has shaped and reshaped modern knowledge. To think of a genre or a concept in this way is kind of tricky. It takes us in a number of disciplinary directions. Siskin starts his book with reference to Galileo. Quote, We have discovered four wandering stars, known or observed, by no one before us," writes Galileo. We will say more in our system of the world. Siskin begins here because it's among the first notable references to any kind of system in his history of the genre. But then this opening quotation also indicates the scope of the book. For Siskin to track the use of system as a governing genre in the Enlightenment, he has to do literary history, intellectual history, the history of science, Indeed, he has to do all of these, and perhaps in a way, not any one of them alone or in particular. Siskin's book takes up in its content, and also challenges in its form, the way we think about disciplinary boundaries in the academy and about disciplines as such. That's one of the many interests of the book and of our conversation. Another topic we take up is the importance of system to the rise of modern liberalism and the dynamics of our current political situation. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Professor Siskin, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Thank you. So, there are tons of things I'm hoping to get into in this interview Um, your your views on the state of disciplines in the academy and on the buzzword interdisciplinarity, uh, your understanding of the meaning of literary history, as well, both as it is practiced today and as it was understood by Francis Bacon. And perhaps most broadly, I'm hoping to touch on uh, your take on the legacy of the Enlightenment and the possibility of what you and others call a re-enlightenment. But the only way I think we're going to get to all those places is if we start at the point where your book starts. Uh, That book is System, The Shaping of Modern Knowledge. It is, in a sense, a book about the history of a concept that is really tricky to define or even, as you admit in the beginning of your book, think about in and of itself. Um, That concept is, of course, system. Uh, You admit this difficulty in your preface, but then you propose a way of getting around that issue and not of thinking about system as a particular idea at all, but as a genre. So my first question is, what do you mean by that? How how should we think of system as a genre?
0: Um, I think you're quite accurate that the key to the book, in many ways, um, is um, making that initial choice as to what the nature of the thing is that I was writing about and almost all the work that I know of um, understands I think in a rather conventional way system as some kind of idea but systems are also things that exist in the world and so what I was looking for um, was a way to talk about it that would allow it to be what you call a concept but at the same time allow it to be something concrete uh, material um and in the world and working in the world in important ways um genre is one means of being able to do that um but it's not as easy as just calling it a genre since there's plenty of disagreement about what a genre is and again i think the most conventional notions of genre you usually understand it as some kind of a grouping by that's identified by specific features or laws. So a novel is the following thing and we look for some Mm. essentialistic kind of definition. Um, The notion of genre that I use um, is very different from that. The simplest way to put it, and these are the words of my mentor when when I was a graduate student, Ralph Cohen, that genres are empirical, they're not logical. And what that means is that if, any, if at any point in time, somebody calls something a system or a novel, then that's one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons for us to think about it as a genre. So it, there's no mystery to this. Genres are groupings of things that are called something in particular at a particular moment in time At that moment in time, a novel, for example, uh, might appear long as it does to us. So novel is a longer form of fiction than a short story. But in the early 18th century, when they first started using the term novel, that feature actually might've been its opposite, which is romances were long and novels were shorter. So any attempt that tries to give an essentialistic definition and tie a genre to a set feature or a set law is going to run into the problem of history. So the use of genre that I employ is about understanding it as historical groupings that change over time. And the groupings are made by people designating certain things as being in a a group to be considered together. So when we say that they're empirical, And not logical we mean that they're empirical in the sense that the term is invoked and used as opposed to the idea that there is some abstract structure of genres that give a logic to it in terms of laws or features so what I look for is when did people first start calling something a system and what things were called systems and what things were called something else. And then to move forward in time and to look again to see what things are called systems and what things are called something else. And to try to track those groupings to look for any consistencies. Are there the same features or, or do those features change? And because we're talking about things that are named at any one particular time, they're always named in relationship to other things. So you say this is a novel, then you're not including it in the category of romance. So genres are also differential, but the
1: differences, again, change over time. So, so your book is called, again, System, the Shaping of Modern Knowledge. Its subtitle uh, raises a question, at least for me, which is what is modern knowledge and how do we distinguish it from, we're talking about distinguishing things, how do we distinguish it from pre-modern knowledge and why is system as a genre important to it?
0: Uh huh. The title of the book went through many, many, many pages and pages <laughs> of different alternatives um, because titles, as you know, are markers in a lot of different ways. In, in one simple way, it's supposed to represent what you're talking about. But also, especially in the way that people search now, you want to have it attract certain kinds of, of keywords. So in thinking about the title, a lot of what happens is in my primary historical period, which is the 18th century or Enlightenment. And in the original versions of the title, Enlightenment were there, was there either in the title or the, the subtitle. And there were extended discussions with the people you know, in the press as to what was gained and lost by saying enlightenment as opposed to modernity. What actually kind of decided things was that the book, as it grew and it took a long time to write, moved backward in terms of trying to make sense of how enlightenment came about. So I end up back at 1600 with Bacon and Galileo. And it also, moved more and more forward past the present and into the future with my interest in computational um, systems so we decided that the that what would work best uh, was to give a sense of the breadth or scope of the argument um and what was what we meant by modern um is the experience that all of us have right now within the academy existing in disciplines and in divisions of disciplines like humanities, social sciences and sciences. So that is the modern state of knowledge at the moment. And the question was, how did that develop? And what was its relationship to enlightenment where in fact, those particular divisions didn't yet exist, but arguably the conditions of possibility for them were generated during enlightenment.
1: So you focus a good deal on Francis Bacon's vision for a great instoration, as well as on the moment at the end of the 18th century where thinkers, as you put it, sort of began to divide knowledge up into disciplines, essentially giving birth to the way knowledge is, in a sense, divided in universities today. You say that both of these are efforts to sort of get knowledge to move forward or to get knowledge unstuck in the 18th century. Could you talk a bit about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most important things in the long gestation period for the for the book was coming to terms with that moment. I primarily am identifying in the book with Bacon and Galileo, but certainly it include others as well. And many of those also made it into the book. And that is the moment where people were aware that there was a need for some kind of a change. So in Bacon's formulation, Knowledge was stuck. It was stalled. It was turning around in a circle. It wasn't getting anywhere. And so the, the imperative was to figure out how to advance knowledge. And so I think it's 1605 is when he puts out the first version of the advancement of knowledge, which later develops into the more uh, elaborate plans for an instauration or, or revolution um, in knowledge. And so in many ways, I tried to take that as a a, a description of a very specific historical situation, uh, where for whatever reasons, people are are understanding knowledge um, as not being able to get somewhere. That's the first thing, but also importantly, the idea that it can and it should get somewhere. So a major revelation, um, though it isn't really a revelation, but it appears to us that way, was the idea that the world was knowable. And if the world is knowable, then it's up to human beings to be able to figure out how to, to know it. And so that meant that a certain kind of advancement or progress was possible because there were earlier periods of time in which that was not um, an assumption. And then the other thing is that in practical terms, Bacon actually lays out a plan. Much of what he writes um, has the features of a modern grant proposal saying, King James, you know, give me this, you know, and I'll produce the following. And one of the strange things is that what he what he wants to produce, in a sense, is a new genre of knowledge. He talks about it as a as a new experimental history that is occurring at the same time that Galileo is has a new tool an improved spyglass and is staring up at the skies in 1610 and he sees something that nobody has been able to see before both because of the power of the spyglass but also because of his method which to go was to go out each night at the same time and um, draw the relationship between jupiter and these small flashes of light that he saw nearby he discovers that in fact those move they're not fixed stars and he realizes that they're moons And as soon as he realizes that they're moons, he knows that something basic in knowledge has changed because he's been able to demonstrate um, that the um, system of the world is a world full of systems. Jupiter has a lunar system, just like Earth has a lunar system as well. And 70 years after Copernicus first proposed um, heliocentrism, For the first time, people had to take it seriously. They had to give it purchase on the real because of what Galileo had seen. Um, And so he joins in this sense that knowledge is now moving forward by putting out um, a pamphlet that addresses itself to all mathematicians and philosophers in the world and announces we're taking a step forward. You have this, to me, it's it's just an amazing moment of time, 400 years ago, when a number of people using different kinds of tools and different ways of using those tools uh, came to a sense that they were living in a world, or what we would now call um, a universe, that they could know and that they could figure out how they could actually know it.
1: So you write in The History of Ideas, this is a quote, in The History of Ideas, Modern knowledge is often seen as developmentally continuous with Enlightenment, with recurring ideas proving the continuity. But in the history of mediation, a crucial difference becomes visible. Modern knowledge emerged from the Enlightenment as something different. That difference was an effect of new deployments of system. Uh, end quote. So, so you're saying you're saying a lot of things, but one thing is that you're saying in a way that the Enlightenment has a legacy in modern knowledge and a legacy today but we are not necessarily in a sense practicing enlightenment mm-hmm. now could you talk about that
0: right i think it's it's even more important uh, to make this point than it was when i first wrote it um, because w- one of the things i've discovered for for a decade i've had a google news feed that picks up everything on enlightenment and on re-enlightenment those two terms and for a long period of time there weren't a, there wasn't a lot that was That was picked up especially about uh, about re-enlightenment um but with all of the um, changes the political changes going on now there's suddenly this yearning this nostalgia for enlightenment as if enlightenment was all the things that we don't have now so enlightenment has truth enlightenment has facts enlightenment has reason and we feel like we want those things back in some way and so the immediate reaction is that um, we were in a state of enlightenment since the enlightenment and that now we're losing it and the solution is to go back to it. But if it refers to the historical enlightenment, that is that period of time in the 18th century, and we look to the way in which actually knowledge was produced and circulated and authenticated and, and confirmed back then, it was in really important ways different from what we have right now and elaborating those differences in terms of how knowledge was organized and and deployed is crucial so i'm obviously very sympathetic and enthusiastic about the notion that people want to turn back to enlightenment but not because it's just like us (laughs) but because it's different from us Um, and um, you know we can use those differences to try to figure out what what we want to do now
1: hmm. so uh, that that takes us to some questions about the now uh, and the present and the developments, not just of modern knowledge but i mean you 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 end your book actually in um sections about the current state of political thought and political life as well as um the state of the academy uh the final section of your book is called connectivities uh in which you address first uh the ways in which our understanding of political structures has sort of changed due to the emergence of what you call master systems mm-hmm. so my first question is what is a master system
0: okay i came up with the term master systems uh just to, to describe a very specific knowledge activity um that dates back in the west to to um, basically the middle of the 18th century and what was involved was the sense that uh, people were producing systems of, of knowledge for the previous century, century and a half. And as they produced more and more systems, there was a desire with each new system to incorporate all previous systems. So your system you know, couldn't, um, couldn't be authentic unless somehow it was able to absorb all previous systems into itself um, as, uh, as parts. So this demonstrated a feature that I've uh, identified as one of the most important in the genre of system, and that is the feature of scalability. Um, so one reason that system has been such a robust genre for knowledge is that um, it tends to always involve um, a relationship between parts and wholes, but those can work in both directions. So parts come together in a whole, but that hole in turn might be a part of a larger hole. (laughs) Or you can start with the larger hole, get a part, and then use that part as a whole, go into that and see its parts as well. And so people are producing knowledge by scaling up and down, using this feature of scalability of the system. And therefore it's, it's, it's really important to have the the sense of how that scaling take took place. And in this specific period in the middle of the 18th century, the primary strategy for doing that um, was to scale up with these inclusions of systems um, of all previous systems within a current system. And the best example of that most obvious in terms of what we are familiar with now um, is the strategy of Adam Smith who laid out his entire career in terms of producing a set of master systems about different topics, jurisprudence, etc. cetera. And there's actually almost a formula where there's a certain number of books, um, I'm not remembering the exact numbers now, and one of those books would be devoted to taking into account all previous systems. So it was a master system in a, in a very direct way. The other reason for identifying it as something that's historically specific is that there's a catch. And the catch is when you get so many systems written that it becomes basically impossible to be able to include them within a master system. And you can actually see this struggle even in the titles of many systems in the 18th century. The titles page, title pages get filled up with this attempt to try to cover everything that, um, that came before. So master systems had a shelf life And that shelf life wasn't very long it was basically contained within this 18th century uh within this 18th century period so they were very powerful but their very power is eventually what made them a less viable strategy uh for producing knowledge in which case just to give a pointer as to where the book goes it says if you're not going to include all systems within larger master systems then the other thing that can happen is to take systems or features of systems and put them into other genres, like for example, essays, which become more and more important toward the end of the 18th century. So when somebody like Malthus decides to write an essay on the principle of population, the principle of population is in fact the basis of a whole system of understanding for him. But what he writes is an essay So the system is embedded within the essay. And one of the ways that you can identify this phenomenon is that Malthus and all the authors who do this apologize for it, because an essay is only fragmentary, it's only partial. So to write an essay is to surrender from the start the notion that you're you're going to have the completeness of um, a system. And so you can go through them and you could just make a list of all the forms of apology that occur within the opening paragraphs for this particular formulation. So systems within master systems gives way to systems and feature of systems within other genres like essays. And I, I track that embeddedness or what I call the travel of system into other forms and use that as a basis for beginning to uh, or for one kind of explanation of how we ended up with the uh, separate disciplines, mm-hmm. as you and I are involved in.
1: A master system, as you point out, is a thing we can construct, as you've been describing. You also point out that it's a thing that we can blame. Um, Uh, You describe this state of affairs as being, um, quote, critical to the formation of liberalism as we know it. So I'm going to ask you uh, to sort of suffer through my reading of a long quote of yours, Uh, (laughs) but I'm hoping you can can talk about it after I'm done. Okay. Uh, So you write, quote, In blaming the system, we can figure things as they are, and that's in quotation marks, uh, in a very particular way as needing change, as capable of being changed as proving the means of effecting that change, and crucially, as always failing enough to maintain an ongoing need for change. That was how liberalism first took shape, and how it still works to perpetuate itself. Its object will always be in need of reform, because those reforms will always fall short. Okay, so could you talk about this dynamic and apply it, say, to the opposition between liberals and conservatives today? Uh, today. (laughs) Well, today or as it developed, because you you do offer them as an example is also Whigs and and Tories and things like that. Right.
0: I mean, I actually I I mean, I said today because I thought you were going to ask back then, but I'm happy to to do today. In fact, I think there's a really good answer just looking at the last two, you know, elections, which is, you know, Obama comes to to power on the basis of uh, of one simple word, which is change, you know. Um, And, you know, he elaborates or Kind of decorates change with the notion that yes we, yes, we can. And I would argue that the assumption that I've identified uh, that's central to liberalism um, from the late 18th, early 19th century is that idea um, that things are in need of change and that we can do it, those two things. It actually, in certain ways, doesn't even matter what's in need of change. It's the invocation of change, and of course, lots of people began to point that out, <laughs> uh, both during the camp, uh, Obama's campaigns and 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 afterwards. You know, what was more important, you know, was this sense that the change was necessary and positive, without even specifying what particular changes it might be, or if you could make a few changes and then things would be all right. So. So the imperative is to change, or as I put it back in the, in the uh, early 19th century, the word they would have used was um, reform. Um, and so the need to change, the need to reform is the central engine for this kind of um, liberalism, but because it projects itself towards some kind of um, ideal it picks up a feature that's characteristic of system, you know, early on, which is uh, the question of whether system is really adequate to the real. Um, You know, whether it comes close enough to being the really thing, a real thing, because people constructed systems in order to be able to um, give an explanation of something. And the worry was always that the system was never quite the full um, explanation. So in political terms, it becomes the sense um, that there's a self-perpetuating uh, activity here, um, which is what's, what's good about liberalism is the fact that it is always in the process of identifying the need to change and always working toward it, which means that the issue that's going to eventually arise in one form or, uh, or another is that failure to achieve change in previous instances that that failure was seen positively as the sense that we can always get better yes we can get better but i think that one way to describe some of the changes uh, you know that happened in regard to this last election was sort of giving up on that the sense that no <laughs> you know it's not close enough we're not going to just Um, buy into the same kind of argument which in which gets both its power from repetition But also its weakness and so a lot of times this personalized, you know, oh another Clinton is running But if you take out the personal part of it It's oh that argument is running again and again and people just didn't buy into the argument this time you know why that's another question, but one place to start is to say, how long has this argument been used? And that's where I date it. And the main example that I give in the text for, you know, for Britain was the uh, debate over the um, reform bill in the early 19th century, where um, for the first time in parliament, the problem was identified as a, a failure of the system. So they actually use the term. It's not me inserting the term into the debate. The, the the term is there, and once it there, once it's there, it picks up many of the resonances that that were with system ever since it uh, you know, appeared in the early sixteen hundreds. Uh, you know, which was this re- repeated question as to whether it was adequate to the to um, the real. So there's a long history of blaming the system, and in fact, the the book's original title. Was that it was blaming the system?
1: So I, I, I've asked you to come up to um, the present political situation, but um, I'm realizing now as I'm looking through my notes, there is one thing I would like to talk about in the 18th century. Uh, uh-huh. Remain there for a moment. Uh, it's another part of your um, section called "Connectivities," where you talk about the importance of clubs, yeah, as in those things you join. Um, uh, you talk about their importance as one of modernity's incarnations of system, and you describe the Fair Intellectual Club. Uh-huh. Uh, what was that club, uh, who was part of it, and why do you talk about it? Okay, so I talk in
0: clubs in general because um, as people who know the history of the 18th century, it was an incredibly important feature um, of society at at that time. And one simple way to get a handle on why you connect that to system is there's, there's a great sort of short definition um, it's not a definition in the essentialistic way it just gives you one handle upon system uh, by kevin kelly and he says a system is anything that talks to itself (laughs) and a club is exactly that you know you form a club or you join a club enabled to to talk to others which means talking to yourself or if you think about it as uh, you know one of his other examples is a, a thermostat a thermostat system talks to itself about whether it's hot or cold in the room, and, and you know, it listens to itself and then takes action, etc. So if you're looking at the social formations in the 18th century, you realize that the act of, of clubbing is the act, act of putting parts together into a whole. So instead of individuals acting by themselves, those individuals act together uh, within clubs. and there were clubs for um, everything. And one thing um, I, I note based on the scholarship uh, on clubs in, in the 18th century, I think, it's, I think I'm think i remembering it correctly, it's Peter uh, Clark who helped to kind of generate this insight is a lot of times we think of clubs in an informal way. So, you know, people get to know each other, they get together, they have a good time, they meet a few Wednesdays, and then they decide to form a club. But it often worked the other way. And, and it was a more formal way, which is you start with the, the notion of a club, as with the Fair Intellectual Club, you start with a constitution that has you know, a list of identifying uh, features that define it, and then you meet. So, subs, so some um, clubs uh, were formally constituted in this way. And one of the most amazing examples that I came across in in my research, it was was largely luck. I was actually at that point researching Jacobitism in the 18th century, and I was in a miscellany where they bound together different pamphlets on different topics. And I ran into the Fair Intellectual Club. And the Fair Intellectual Club was the early 1700s. Um, It was a group basically of uh, teenage girls who got together in secret, and they got together for a purpose, um, and that was to improve themselves. So one important aspect of this is they take that notion of progress and improvement in relationship to knowledge that I mentioned earlier in regard to Bacon and, and Galileo, and they, they take it as, as something that is within their reach if they use certain kinds of procedures to tool and tools to get it and the tool they use is writing they have a brief window of time between being dominated by their parents and married off and they want to make use of that by forming a club of nine like the nine muses for the purpose of improving um, their characters. And the way they put that is really quite remarkable, Uh, which is the, I think the phrase is to achieve the character of members. I'll I'll have to double check that. And the point was, is that they wanted to be something other than what they were. And they needed to devise the tools and methods to do it. So it's very Baconian in, in, in that sense. And so they set up, as I just described, and they start with the Constitution. One of the uh, rules in the Constitution, when a member leaves the club, and tellingly, the two conditions were death or marriage. <laughs> and... and um, and in fact, one of the reasons, the main reason that we know about it, if we're to believe their own account, is that, is that one of the members leaked the secret to her boyfriend. Oh. And they had to decide whether they were going to go public in some way in order to preempt it just being a subject of, uh, of uh, gossip. What they did when they got together is they wrote everything down. So to be a member, you had to write um, harangue. Uh, the harangue was written down, but then it was spoken to the club. Uh, the club members would all write down notes and an assessment of the of the harangue, and every action that they that they took was grounded in these acts of writing, which essentially became acts of rewriting themselves into something other than what they were. So this is one of the early example, earliest examples, I think, that we know of. It may be the earliest uh, you know, of a secret club of, of women. The fact that it occurs in Scotland shortly after the Act of Union also has significance, which I do elaborate on in, um, you know, in the book. And it connects to other kinds of activities that um, also have a significant gender uh, importance in, in, in my argument. So Mary Estelle is just a decade and a half before them with a serious proposal of uh, for the ladies, which in many ways is a proposal for uh, a club. For Mary Estelle, the worry is that uh, what holds women back is what she um, terms and very familiar to us the notion of the male gaze. And she wants to to be able to block the male gaze so that women have a chance to be able to improve themselves. And she basically invents you know, an important feature of the modern notion of, of education, which is women would enter into an institution, which initially sounds like it's a convent, kind of just women alone, a wall between you and the, and the, and the male gaze. But then she brings in an incredibly simple innovation which is that at a certain point you leave the convent. And that's what we do in regard to school. We put ourselves behind walls (laughs) for a period of time for the purpose of improvement and then leave the institution and go out into the world having been improved by degrees within the the school uh, itself. So when you put together some of these examples, you realize that, you know, they, one way to put it is 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 that these women, in a sense, kind of systematize themselves, form themselves into club or clubs, or institutionalize themselves within a a, a new kind of educational system, in order to be able to make it possible to improve and to contribute to this advancement of knowledge.
1: So, uh, that's fascinating. That's one of the many ways I think your book does take up the question of how. Uh, some of the figures you write about sort of set the stage for the development of the modern university and the modern Mm -hmm. sort of um, way that knowledge is divided. So I'm hoping we can talk about uh, now about the current state and structure of the academy, particularly about the role of disciplines and how sort of in vogue it is, or it seems to be, to talk about interdisciplinarity Uh and the importance of bridging gaps between disciplines. Uh, but, But I'm hoping to get at this Topic with maybe an odd question. Um, so if I were somebody uh, who was just browsing the faculty in- index of NYU's English department online uh-huh. and I happened on your page and I said, oh, his work sounds interesting. I'll pick up one of his books because I'm interested in literature and literary study. Um, I don't know if people browse faculty pages in this way, but in any case, this is a hypothetical. Uh, they do. <laughs> they do. Okay, I can tell uh, you that from experience. Yeah. So, 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 say I pick up your book system, I think I'd probably be in some sense surprised by its content. Uh-huh. Um, uh, what what is it about your book that makes it a work of literary study? If you think of it as literary study in those okay. very basic disciplinary terms,
0: right? So I think there's a kind of double surprise. One is that I did not participate in choosing what Library of Congress categories the MIT filed the book in. Um, I, had, I had no conversations with them about what they would call the book, mm-hmm. either labeling it on the cover or uh, you know, which part of the catalog that it would be in at all. And uh, what I discovered is that, you know, there's five or six, I think, Library of Congress classifications and none of them have the word literary or the word literature in it um, at all. And in in certain ways, pleased by that, because it means that, um, you know, I can connect to other kinds of uh, audience, but the other surprise that you have to pair with it is that I imagine people who go and see that on the outside, it says history, in the Library of Congress, things it says things like um, science, physics, system, etc., and uh, people picking it up for science, uh, physics, um, system um, would open it up and discover that there's a whole chapter on William Wordsworth. <laughs> so, so whether you're picking it up expecting he's an English professor, you know, why isn't it classified as literary? And then you pick it up according to the way that it was classified and you discover that there's a whole chapter, you know, on on a romantic poet, then you realize, uh, you know, what's at stake here, you know, which is, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a kind of knowledge that's produced in a, you know, in a different way, it shares some things with other aspects of knowledge, but, you know, it is a departure for, um, for me in the way that it took shape and in the way that it's been uh marketed as you know as as well um so um but i should get to the second part of your question which is you know why do i understand it to be literary um and it's not only because it has a subject matter that can be considered literary i mean wordsworth is in there isn't is in there as an example of something it's not so much me giving interpretations or close readings of 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 works though i do attend to the to the works but uh, but what was at stake for me um, in uh, doing this um, was a notion of literary history um, that I'm trying to recover from the past. And in particular, um, when Francis Bacon describes what kinds of knowledge um, need to be developed in order to allow for the larger advancement of knowledge, he goes through a list of histories, and it's important to remember that history had a very different meaning back then. There were some meanings of history that involved chronology that were about time, but history was also understood in, in, an, in an empirical sense. So a natural history of a butterfly is not the story of the how the butterfly grew up. The natural history of a butterfly is an empirical description of the features of a of a, of a butterfly. So he's going through these different kinds of histories in both an empirical and temporal sense. And he says one of the big ones, perhaps the biggest one that's been missing is what he calls literary history. And he even compares it to, um, uh, to you know, to the kind of the putting out the eye of the cyclops. Uh, we're blind unless we have this eye. Um, and uh, that I, uh, you know, E-Y-E, is literary in its former sense of uh, being inclusive uh, of, of everything that's written, even to the extent that definitions up through Britannica, 1770s into the 1780s would um, define um, literature and literary as simply learning. Um, so the way I o- always... St- teach it to myself and to others is to suggest that you think of a lowercase L as including all possible <coughs> um, parts of learning, all possible uh, kinds of, of writing um, versus uppercase, or capital L literature, um, which is a, a, a special subset uh, of small L literature, that was constructed at a very specific moment at the turn into the 19th century and became the, the basis um, for English studies as we know it. The first English department is 1813 in a high school. Um, the formation of a canon that could be understood as capital L literature dates in the same period of time. So my experiment is to say what if we been, went back to Bacon's version of it? And he says what literary history is, because it's inclusive, is the story of the use and administration of knowledge. So what if literary historians took as their task the um, that story and opened up to all of the kinds of materials that would have to be included in that story? And in that sense, I would like uh, To claim, and I would like people to understand what I wrote um, as a literary history, Um, and this is a possibility um, for um, literary historians to redefine what they do by being able to recover an earlier feature of what was meant by literary and uh, and literature.
1: So you point out near the end of the book that interdisciplinarity. Uh, preserves or ratifies our understanding of discipline as that which can be mixed or shared it. The discipline is still the basic governing mm-hmm. category and discipline in this sense is obviously bound up with what you were just talking about, with which is the creation of this, of this category category literature with a capital L, uh-huh. uh, but, but you at the end of your book want to consider the possibility of reshaping that very basic unit of knowledge could you talk about this project and how it might relate to um right to re-enlightenment perhaps so a large part of what
0: we've done within the re-enlightenment project has been to examine the history and possibilities of of knowledge And, and that's included doing a lot of of work on both the conception of discipline itself and also of interdisciplinarity and perhaps the simplest way to put it is um it's been decades now where whenever I've been in a meeting, whether within an English department or a broader grouping within the university, um, there's nobody um, who who doesn't think that they're doing interdisciplinary work. And when you realize that people both invoke it as if it's something special that they do above and beyond the regular work of discipline, the fact that everybody is invoking it tells you um, that um, you know a it's not unusual and b it's probably not changing too much if everybody's if everybody is is doing it so one of the initial arguments um, is the one that you mentioned which is just looking at the word you realize that adding inter doesn't change the fact that the basic unit of organization is the discipline itself and that's the thing that's uh key so uh, you know, in large-scale terms in the 18th century, the way I usually explain it, um, is um, that uh, knowledge uh, uh, worked in a, um, in a branching manner. Um, so philosophy, uh, natural and moral philosophy, was kind of the trunk of the tree. Um, and all the different kinds of knowledge were branches, which meant that people could move from one branch to another. So when Thomas Blackwell says in the middle of the 18th century, when he's supposedly writing about Homer that it's time for a little philosophy, it turns out that he means it's time for just about every kind of inquiry that you can think of. And you know, our strange notion of you know, a Renaissance man or a Renaissance woman as if they're exceptional because they do different kinds of knowledge, historically makes no sense. Um, in that it was possible for anybody to do that because the branches were all connected. But then what happens at the end of the 18th century, and I've worked on this before in in my previous book, The Work of Writing, um, but I've added and extended a new argument based on my work on system, um, is that that branching model gives way um, to the narrow but deep silos of specialization uh, that, um, that, that we are in um, and the contribution of, of, of the book, of system to that um, is recognizing uh, or is something that you can easily recognize when you look, for example, at um, encyclopedias. Um, Britannica, when it first appears, I think it's 1768 to 70 is the first um, edition um, and uh, announces that it is digested knowledge in a new way it's basically alphabetical like the French encyclopedia, like Ephraim Chambers earlier, but, um, but um, they've added something else, which is they've tried to take some of the pieces of knowledge and put them together into other units. And by the time it reaches the, the um, third uh, edition um, at, the, at the end of the 18th century, they advertise that the encyclopedia now depicts, and this is an exact quote, the detached parts of knowledge. So you see, but that by that time, by the end of the century, knowledge is understood of consisting of detached parts. And they describe the detached parts in terms of two things. One, you're pulling the different um, elements of each part together as a system, they it a treatise and system and you do that by also offering a history so um, this these new groupings tell the history of themselves um, and they present themselves in a kind of club-like manner (laughs) as a system as as well Um, so you can track the formation of this new unit of knowledge that we call the discipline uh, to this actual reconfiguration within the encyclopedias itself, I call them proto-disciplines. And once those, you know, once those are in place, in the context of the of the the book, I just make that part of the argument. But I've been uh, working with my collaborator Bill Warner since then to kind of make a two-step argument for this that gives a context for for why interdisciplinarity. Um, is is not a solution to what people are looking for. And the two steps are that um, the first one is the formation of the narrow but deep silos of knowledge. But within uh, 30 to 50 years after that, that is between 1830 and 1850, another grouping takes place, uh, which we use the metaphor of zoning to describe and that is the first uses of the categories of humanities, social sciences, and sciences. So disciplines um, are like uh, homes. Homeowners get together and they form neighborhoods. And those neighborhoods become gated communities. Um, so that quite uh, you know, literally our modern universities, uh, not all of them, but, uh, but most of them, Uh, are formed out of these gated communities, which often take the form of separate buildings um, as well. Um, And the significance of this is that the disciplines have already moved toward connecting certain topics or subjects to certain methods. Um, So, uh, You know, if you take the humanities, the generalization most people would would offer is to get the root and say the human (laughs) and link the study of the human to certain methods or practices like interpretative close reading, let's say. That's already occurring at the disciplinary level. When the zoning takes place, that bond between subject and method gets double sealed. so now the humanities and one of the strange features for anybody who's been in the business as long as as me you know is is that you know we used to identify ourselves as english professors and now suddenly in this defensive mode we're all the humanities um and uh you know also it, it has done has gotten us into more and more trouble to um to do this So the experiment that that Bill and I have been conducting is to just ask a couple questions, which is if this history I just described is correct. What if you started peeling away at it? What if you took off? What if you took the zoning away and then you just had the disciplines again? And, you know, how would they function? And then the question. Would come to the question, the issue of whether you want to keep the disciplines in, in their present form as, as well and call into question that unit of knowledge. Um, so, this is a way of both describing what happened to knowledge since enlightenment, formation of the disciplines, the zoning of the disciplines into these gated communities, and if now we feel that there's something constraining about being in those gated communities then let's take one variable at a time and remove it. So the first variable is open the gate. <laughs> you know, is it really worthwhile to still label ourselves humanities and stay within that gated community? And the second one, uh, you know, which is harder, but in a, you know, in a, in a different way um, is uh, whether um, the discipline itself, the, the boundaries of specialization narrow but deep are something that um, we want to keep uh, as well.
1: So I mean, you talk about this this new stance of defensiveness, where all of these professors, either in English uh-huh. or history or whatever, sort of band together and usually in the like the pages of the New Republic or something, you know, write op-eds or, or, or pieces, you know, defending the humanities right. or describing or diagnosing what's often called the crisis of right. the humanities. Do you think that the that this cr- first, I, I suppose, first question, do you think this crisis is real or just perceived? Um, and then, and then second, if it's real, does it have anything to do with the fact that disciplinarity as such has run out of steam or. Yeah. I don't think darkness? there's
0: any doubt that it's, that it's real. And the, the realness of it has to do um, in a simple sense with just counting. Um, you know, the, um, there's been big articles in the, you know, in the in the Washington Post and in other and in other places, um, you know, describing within a relatively short period of time, within the past, you know, three to five years, uh, 40 50 percent drop-offs in the number of um, people who major, for example, in in English or who occupy seats in English uh, in, in English classes um the number of of phd applicants has has dropped um significantly in addition to all of the other kinds of evidence uh you know as we have right now that um you know thanks to trump get rid of neh and nea um, etc um there's definitely something changing (laughs) and it's something that upends the status quo um so it's it's real then the question is um, how do we account for that and how do we react to it? And the reaction that I think has been a real disaster um, is the defensiveness, um, because the term humanities um, you know, is, um, is used as something to kind of um, uh, hide behind. Um, and what I mean by hide is um, the, the defense takes the form of blame. And so we blame, um, depending on what level you want uh, to blame that particular, at that particular moment, you blame deans who want to, you know, grab lines and money and take, it, take them away. You blame students because why aren't students in English because they're all so career minded and they're worried about making money, therefore they don't, you know, take, take my courses you know, or of course the grand gesture that you hear more and more, and that is, oh, this is neoliberalism. Um, th- the efforts <laughs> to just blame everything but what we might be doing, um, you know, are bearing fruit, which is the crisis is just getting worse and and worse. So the simple question that Bill and I have asked ourselves is, um, you know, is is there an alternative to blame to both understand and to be able to begin to work to solve the problem once we identify what the, what the problem is. Um, and so one of the ways that we put this is that the, this mode of knowledge production that I've just described, the formation of narrow but deep specialties and the zoning of those specialties um, into uh, uh, integrated communities, has been a very successful strategy for producing knowledge lots of knowledge has been produced within let's call it this knowledge project Um, and so it's not helpful for us to see it as failure but rather the consequences of success we know that knowledge changes that it takes different forms we know that because Bacon says, you know, scholasticism is stuck. I'm gonna do it this way. We have, we have example after example um, that, that knowledge has um, a history. So we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that specific knowledge projects um, uh, go through the different parts of that history. They get initiated, they produce or they don't produce. And if they don't produce, they fail. If they do produce, they're successful. But the key to success is succession, is you can't keep doing the same thing kind of over and over again. So the question would be, what's next? And that's a question that can't be solved by blame of everything external to us. It's what is it that we've been doing and that we could now do? And if we've been successful, then we should have been enabling ourselves to be able to do something
1: else. I think that's a good uh, place to stop Thanks so much for coming on and talking to me, Professor. Okay, thank you. That was Clifford Siskin, author of System: The Shaping of Modern Knowledge. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual conservative progressive conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies, and it's been quite a year for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org, and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.